Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Coming to you from my home office in Los Angeles, California, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Kelly Reichardt has been a filmmaker for more than two decades. When she's not directing and writing movies, she is a teacher at Bard College. Her films are quiet. She usually shoots them in Oregon and films on location, typically on a shoestring budget. And odds are, if you've seen a movie that she's made, you care really deeply about her work. She's that kind of director. Maybe you loved Wendy and Lucy or Old Joy or Meek's Cutoff a Western told from the perspective of the female settlers on the Oregon Trail. In it, the actors don't talk much. The camera just kind of takes in the landscape, which is, of course, beautiful. Her work often brings out the human nature of her characters in a surprising and beautiful way. There's a meditative quality to watching her films. She's got a new movie. It's called First Cow. Like Meek's Cutoff, it's also set in the American West around the 1820s. And it's a buddy film and a heist film, a beautiful, quiet, buddy heist film. Also, the heist is stealing milk from a cow, one of the first cows to show up in the particular region covered by the film. And the payoff to this big heist is maybe they make tastier biscuits with the milk and then sell them at the trading post. Obviously, there is more to the movie than a cow and biscuits, but the cow is really something to look at. I want to play a clip from the film, but first a heads up. Kelly and I talked back in February, which is why it sounds like we're both talking from studios. We were talking from studios. The movie ended up getting postponed. Anyway, in the film, we're introduced to Otis Cookie Figowitz. He's played by John Magaro. He's been hired to be a cook in a fur trapping group in the Pacific Northwest. Cookie is soft-spoken and not really at home in the Wild West. He's barely capable of catching wild animals for supper. He's kind of a gentleman. There's a scene where he helps a newt struggling on its back. In this clip, he hears a sound in the distance in the middle of the night, and while everyone in the camp is asleep, he tries to find out what the sound was. Then, Cookie discovers a naked man hiding in a bush. What's your name? King Lou. So they call me. You? Otis Figowitz. They call me Cookie. Good to meet you. There are uh, some men chasing me. Russians. Have you seen them? Why are men chasing you? I might have killed one of their friends. Genovus. My friend. They called him a thief and they gutted him from neck to loin. I had a pistol. I took a shot. I got one in the neck. Then they came after me and I ran. Kelly, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's quite a way to meet a new best friend. <laughs> Naked in the woods. That's never, that's never happened to you. <laughs> not even one time, Kelly. Not even wow. one time. Strange. 
<laughs> you are you live much of the time in Oregon, and a, a lot of your films are are shot in Oregon. How did you end up living there, and why do you make films there and not somewhere else? I know I'm a regional filmmaker, but I'm from Florida. And I've lived for 30 years in New York City, but I'm somehow a regional filmmaker of Oregon. Um, well, just that we were working there so much. I mean, I've just started, you know, just sort of started that more of my time was there. And then as soon as I sort of let go of my apartment in New York and moved there, of course, then it, my I got pulled back to New York. So I still have a foot in New York because I teach at Bard College one semester a year, and I'm often editing in New York City. But I'm trying to leave the big city and live a smaller life in Oregon. And, you know, it's true. We've made a bunch of films there, and I think largely because of the writing of John Raymond. He has been in Oregon most of his life, and uh, he kind of writes for, uh, you know, walks around Portland and thinks things up and <laughs> about what he sees and writes them. Um, so that, that's that been a, a big reason. He wrote the novel that the film is based on and co-wrote right. the movie with you and, and wrote novels and short stories that were the basis of some of your other works as well. But how yeah. did you meet him? Um, I met him through Todd Haynes, which is how I got introduced to Portland. I sort of, when Todd moved out there, I started going out to visit him. And I met John through Todd. But I, I didn't really know him well when I read The Half-Life. I'd only met him once. And I uh, I was driving cross-country, and I was in Kansas, and I finished the novel at a hotel in Kansas. And I, I wrote him from there, and I asked him if he had any short stories that I could you know, turn into a screenplay. And he, I recently found the first email he ever wrote me, which was like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, so that's how we ended up making Old Joy. He sent me Old Joy. And then, um, I mean, uh, the Half-Life spans four decades and uh, covers two continents. And so it was really, you know, not something that was in my grasp is a film. And we've sort of pondered it over the last decade of how we would ever do it. And then finally, we came up with this, um, or I should say, John came up with this idea of the cow. And so that kind of, the cow's not in the novel. And so that kind of gave us a new thing to work around that we could bring the characters from his novel and the sort of themes from the novel, but bring it to a new narrative. This is a period film set in the West of uh, the United States, but it is shot in a, you know, not far from square aspect ratio. And a lot of the things that happen in it are in places that are kind of thick with trees instead of being grand mesas and vistas. Did you think of it as being Western in any way when you were making it, or were you thinking of something else? I mean, it's 1820, and it's uh, Oregon, pre-Oregon, this uh, lower Columbia district that's on, off the Columbia River. I kind of didn't feel as sort of tied into the, you know, 
genre of the Western, the way I did when we uh, made another film that was 1845 from a screenplay of John's that was called Meek's Cutoff. And in that, I really felt like, okay, I'm in the footprint of the Western, and if I'm either commenting on it or I'm going with it. And it was just something I had to constantly consider. And I didn't really feel that here. I felt um, it may be somewhat, you know, the Academy frame that you're talking about, the 166, it does, it is an intimate frame. And it sort of allows for, you know, you could get the tall trees in and because you have more room on the top, basically, but you don't have this expanse yeah, I just, I mean, this was kind of almost more of a heist film, if it had to be something. it I didn't feel, um, you know, in Meek's Cutoff, it was the desert, and there were bonnets and horses and oxen and wagons. And, and this was just following these two fellows around. And, you know, it's a it takes place around uh, the beaver trade, the first sort of seeds of capitalism. And it's in the area of the Multnomah tribes. And so it, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it didn't feel so Western. When you wrote the cow into the film, which as you mentioned, was, was not in the original novel. Right. How did that come about? I mean, did your, did your collaborator come to you one day and say, what about a cow? I mean, we live right down the street from each other in Portland. We're like talking all the time. So it's not like we were brainstorming. Did you go through different animals and then be like, well, what about an emu or? No, I can't remember. I'm, I really don't remember. I'm sure John came up with it. And then you sort of build one idea and the other. I was like, oh, well, you know, we got to have, he's got to make something for the chief factor then. And, you know, you just kind of, kind of builds. But um, usually there's room for me to go in and expand on the, uh, more on the smaller characters and on the spaces. And then, um, yeah, it just kind of keeps going like that. But I can't remember the the moment. I mean, like we've been mulling. The, I, I read this novel in 2004 and sort of in between projects, we're always kind of mulling over the half-life. Like, how could we do it? What opportunities does having the the, you know, instigator of your film the the <laughs> the MacGuffin of your film be a cow what opportunities does that give you well um i like working with animals i like having um you know looking at relationships between people and animals it's nice because john magaro's character cookie is this really earthbound person who's trying to have some kind of find some kind of uh, domestic life, you know, settled life, and he's he's really down low to the ground with this cow and all this, you know, having this talk with her and the milk and all the stuff that's really nurturing. And King Lou is sort of our guy up in the tree, like the owl, you know, just like taking an overall view of everything and. Um, and, you know, with his big dreams and ideas. And so I liked how it, uh, I could picture how it could be shot and how that could be um, really interesting way to, you know, sort of physicalize the whole idea of their relationship and what they wanted to do. It's also kind of 
you know, as a domestic animal, it's kind of like an intermediary between their human world and the intensely brutal natural world around them. And like normally most of the characters in the film, the most of the peripheral characters who are like hunters and trappers are going to out every day essentially to have a fight with nature, you know, and hope, yeah. hope they come back. And it's this visitor from a, from a liminal world that there's a, a cow there that is an animal that is, you know, friendly to people and provides this nurturing thing. Yeah. Well, the beaver aren't so scary. They're not going to kill anybody. They were kind of <laughs> had a bad deal. Speak for yourself. I'm terrified of beavers. Yeah. <laughs> they can do so much. <laughs> yeah. There's, well, you know, like the sort of crime in the movie is, you know, these guys stealing a basket of milk. But, uh, you know, but meanwhile, the chief factor and in the industry he's setting up, they're going to completely wipe out the beaver, not to mention what's going to happen to all the indigenous people in the area. You know, the crime is the uh, stealing of what is rightfully in this whole, you know, whatever. he own, It's just the beginning of the idea that you could own land, you could own, you know, this whole idea of ownership. The cow is his. The land is his. <laughs> How do you cast a cow? Much like you cast an actor, you get you get headshots and body shots. And a cattle call. <laughs> you do. Well, you do. You get a lot of, you get a lot of, look at a lot of pictures and then um, kind of narrowed down the kind of cow we wanted, which was the Jersey cow, because it was kind of the right size and had, they have those big eyes. And then the um, animal people we were working with found Evie in, uh, I think she came from Washington and sent started sending videotapes of her after I'd like select her from the photos and she was just you know and they went and met her and she was great and they started training her mostly for um being able to be okay on uh she rides on a ferry and uh just to be okay with that it's a sort of very superficial casting experience where you just say oh she's the prettiest and she's got great eyes and she's not too big and yeah is there a cow trainer? Yes. Well, there's an overall the animal trainers who, you know, we got the crow from from that Renee is wearing on his shoulder, the old cranky man in town and uh I mean there was like they do dogs too, but that wasn't working out so great. I didn't love the trained dog experience, so we started swapping them out for um friends dogs as the movie went on. But uh, they do everything. Like um, they brought the um, the little uh, what do you call him? The little lizard guy that's in the movie. Oh, there's a salamander right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's not technically a salamander, but I'm spacing on what it is. But yeah, that guy. Oh, he's cute. I liked him. He gets cast too. Everybody gets cast. I had newts for a little while as a kid. Newts. That's what it was. I oh. think he's a newt. Yeah, there I you go. I think he's a new. Yeah. Cool. More with Kelly Reichardt still to come. After the break, we'll talk about whether or not she's happy with the life she's leading, 
or whether she envisioned something different. You know, just small talk. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. How do you maintain a friendship in the middle of a pandemic? Including our last restaurant meal. My last restaurant meal was with you. I love that. Wow. <laughs> Aminatou So and Ann Friedman gave me some friend pointers. They host a podcast called Call Your Girlfriend, and they wrote a book all about friendship. Listen and subscribe now to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kelly Reichardt, the acclaimed filmmaker. She's directed the movies Old Joy, Meek's Cutoff, Wendy and Lucy, and Night Moves. Her latest is called First Cow. It's a period piece set in the early 1800s. It's about two men and a big, beautiful cow. It's available to rent or buy digitally now. You work often at a pretty small scale in terms of Often. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically always. Uh, this, is yeah. a, this is a pretty grand project for you. And yeah. it, it's about as modest as a period film set in the 1830s could possibly be. Um, is that primarily because that is where your interests lie? Or, if, or were you able to raise the $30 million? Would you be out making you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or something. No, I never really had those ambitions. This has been a world that's been kind of created over a decade, this, uh, what you know, this sort of crew going out and working on these films. And it's, I mean, I will say this was very satisfying because we had a little bit more money and we actually shot five-day weeks, which is a dream. I don't... Um, I did was getting to a point where I was like, okay, I can't keep making films on this budget. Like on certain women, I was just like, it's too, like I'm just getting too old for it. It's too physically grueling. But this was great, you know. The thing about small films is you get a lot of autonomy. You're, you know, you know. I made a film about two guys stealing milk with <laughs> name unnamed actors, and nobody, you know, I cut it myself and there's no test screenings or there's no one showing up on the set to watch what you're doing. It's all very, um, it's, uh, yeah, you're just kind of making stuff. There's not all these added hassles that takes a whole other skill set to deal with that I don't think I quite possess. Sometimes when I read about a film's $50,000 budget or $100,000 budget, or even, you know, three or $500,000 budget or million dollar budget. What I think about is, I think like, you know, all of the crew and actors are getting paid a certain amount of money and they have to fit that within that budget. But I imagine they can because that's how that works. You know, you just have a smaller crew or fewer lights or something like that. But I think, you know, the director of this movie worked on this movie probably for three years or four years. And that amount of money sounds like a reasonable wage for one person for that three or four years. <laughs> like the thing that always shocks me is that there is this one piece, which is like, there are people who have been pouring their hearts into this over the course of years who, you know, there's only so many pieces of money to break off of $300,000. Well, 
Well, this was nicely a union film, so it's it is really nice to pay people and to like I said, working five day weeks was a total dream. But yeah, you can't really do this kind of filmmaking for the thinking like, okay, now I'm can live live some. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I don't know about all the other kinds of filmmakers. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to make films. I'm not down on any of the other ways. I, it's just a matter of like I just carved this way out, and I happen to have this really nice community of people I teach with at Bard College that um, lets me not worry about uh, doesn't put that tax on the movie of like this having to supply me with something else. Um, I mean, and they work with each other. It's nice the teaching and the um, and the filmmaking. It's a yeah, it offers a good headspace for both things. But um, I don't know. I think everyone has to. Uh, you know, a lot of people that you probably think live off their films really live off making commercials and, you know, don't, you know, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't have that much of a foot in that world. So it's hard for me to know exactly what everyone's doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, I, I know a lot of folks who direct small features, make their livings, directing commercials or directing directing uh, episodic TV, which are both like yeah. jobs that you can have as a director that are more discreet. Directing a commercial is generally, you know, I get, you know, it's a, it's two days on set or one day on set and maybe you're working on it for a week or maybe you're working on it for two weeks uh, on the long side. Maybe you're just on set and somebody gives you a creative brief when you show up in the morning or something shooting a television show, directing an episode of a television show. Well, it takes a week usually to make an episode of a television show because they got to make one every week. So it's only a certain amount of work. Do you just teach or or do you do other stuff? Um, no, I just teach. I'm making these movies <laughs> and I edit them. And yeah. It takes a long time. And, and I teach. <laughs> just teach. I don't mean to diminish teaching. It, I mean, you know, that's like kind of takes up all my time. Um, I have also a lot of knitting to do. <laughs> and uh, I am a faithful dog walker to several dogs in my neighborhood. Yeah, but that sort of takes up all the time. Have you gotten to the life that you hoped you might have when you, at, at whatever age, decided, oh, I'll be a filmmaker? Yeah. Recently, I um, I have my own place now, which I never had before, and uh, it's very nice. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I like it. It's good. It's nice. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, I, I just like the film, really, this film is, you know, the whole thing of getting back to um, that your home is where your friends are. And I and I have lived a life around the goals for myself where I wanted to be around interesting people. And I wanted to be able to learn about art and see art and know artists. That's what I wanted when I was a kid and I was like in the cultural void of Dade County, Florida. And that's worked out. And um, some of, you know, a lot of these people I've been talking to about films with or art with for 
you know, like 30 years now almost. And that's like incredible. Um, some filmmakers are really, really different than me, like Todd Haynes and Larry Fessenden or, or my friend Phil Morrison, just people, but that you're in this conversation uh, about film um, or being able to have a, you know, uh, this ongoing collaboration with uh, Jonathan Raymond and Chris Blavelt, uh who I really like collaborating with and and the people I teach with. Yeah, I you know, not to go on and on, but that's what I wanted. I wanted an interesting um I find it all interesting and I find the people that I'm around keep me turning me on to things and I don't know, it it helps me uh uh I think art helps you like get you know, reminds you that like this is you listen to all this and all this daily stuff uh that we have to suffer through uh at the moment and you know and then you go see some art and you realize like oh yeah that's or you listen to a record or something and you go like oh yeah that's not every that's not really not it's nothing like really i mean it's not nothing because people's lives get affected but it's not everything and there's other important things that are happening and people are, uh, I don't know. I should shut up now. Babbling. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> Art is good. Friends are good. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Wait, is this podcast must be like five hours. How long we've we been talking here? A long like time, right? 50 minutes. It'll be oh. edited. We'll It'll be, be edited yeah. down to what? I don't know, half an hour. That's good. That's yeah. good space. Don't right, worry. Cool. Everything's right. fine, right. Kelly. All right. I'm a professional, ma'am. I understand. Do you think that you might ever change your way of life, or do you think that you have found the mm-hmm. one that is right for you? Jeez. Wow, such heavy questions. Um. What do you mean change my way of life? I don't know. Uh, I like to do things. Uh, way of life. Hmm. Uh, I mean, these guys, here's my question, Kelly. Like, Okay, go ahead. So go like ahead. King Lou in the movie is always working on the next step, right? He's looking for... He's I got look- a project. I got a project. Yeah. Okay, go on. Go on. Whereas I think Cookie... You know, he has a he has a dream too, but his dream is more about stability. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And domesticity. Like it's like even his grand scheme to have his own hotel is literally the most domestic grand scheme you could ever yeah. have, you know? And I wonder if you are like, yes, this is my dream to have a good job and get to make a movie every few years that that my job accommodates or if you're like no I'm going to make I I I have an I have another plan I'm going to I'm going to this is my springboard to this to this to this to what to what to what I don't know that's what yeah. I'm asking Gee whiz if you get to make a film Every couple of years with people you like making films with and you're getting to make the films you want to make. I mean, like, how 
greedy am I going to get? <laughs> I mean, what more am I supposed to, I don't know what more I'm supposed to want. I know the subtext of what you're asking, but I just don't find, I, I don't know, why does everyone think that world is so great? Like the filmmaker, the endless, like if you make films, like somehow you're supposed to end up in this one world. My film's dedicated to Peter Hutton, and I got to spend 10 years uh, talking about film and teaching with Peter Hutton. I'm not going to find anybody like Peter Hutton making giant films in Hollywood, if that's what you're getting at. I work with all these, you know, Peggy Awish and Ben Coonley and just Jackie Goss, like really, some really interesting filmmakers at Bard that are thinking about films in different ways not just straight narrative. And um, I don't know where else I'm going to meet any people like that. And I don't, well, I don't, I'm not that interested in show business, to be honest. It's just not like my bag. So I don't know if you get to make a film every couple of years. I mean, I really didn't like the decade of not being able to get a film made. But if you're, you're working and you're getting to make stuff, I mean, and you're making the stuff you want to make, it's not like anybody should be giving, like, you know, I mean, I'm making films about a guy, like we said, who, some guys who steal milk with non-name actors. Like, I'm not expecting that to, uh, I mean, you're lucky if you get to make that film. That's a lucky, crazy thing. Um, I mean, I worry the, about uh, these films that tell you know, like when I'm on an airplane and I walk down the aisle and I see what everybody's watching, I go like, oh, my God, I can't believe we've been able to make any of these films. Look at what people want to look at, you know. Well, it feel, always feels like we've gotten away with something. And I don't know, probably we have. I feel very grateful. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you took the time to come on the show, and I'm grateful for your wonderful movies. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, actually. Kelly Reichert, her beautiful, funny, moving, wonderful film, First Cow, is available to rent or buy now. Go check it out. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced from the homes of the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California where the Maximum Fun team ordered a cameo for our colleague KT Wigman's birthday. The subject of that cameo video message? Eve, the cow star from Kelly Reichert's First Cow. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, Jesus Ambrosio, and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.